trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. This is a place where we like to revel in wrong think. And by that, I simply mean we like to question the various narratives out there that we are told are the absolute truth, and uh, you must not consider anything else. Look away, citizen. Look away from that story you're reading on the Internet. Look away from that commentator, uh, I would say, on YouTube, but they're pretty good about purging anybody who's, who's questioning the narrative. Citizen, you may not look at these things unless unless you are told by our fact checkers that it's safe to check it out. See, that sounds a lot like uh, there's there's some competition for your allegiance, for your mind. So I'll just put my cards on the table and tell you, your mind is your own. I don't presume to tell you what to think. I'm not here to insist that you have to believe whatever you hear on this program. But I do think it's in your best interest to think as clearly and independently as you can especially because we find ourselves in a time of crisis. And that's when our greatest duty as citizens is to think as clearly and independently as possible. So come find courage and camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers. You're going to find you're in very good company. I have some great sponsors who make this show possible. These are the people who make it possible for me to do what I do, whatever that is. Sometimes, some days I'm not even sure. But they include great sponsors like the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, GovernYourIncome.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Well, let's jump right in. I have uh, I've been reading a number of different commentators, and J.B. Shirk, who is a regular writer for... Um, I think it's for American Thinker. I'm trying to remember. Anyway, J.B. Shirk is one of these uh, one of these writers who has just been on fire lately. When it comes to uh, to summarizing what is happening in America, and one of the things he points out here is, and it's not just America. I guess I should I should expand expand this to the West is that we're being told, you know, that in the name of democracy, we have to uh, take these rights from you in order to protect democracy. I think I think the president's actually having some kind of a summit. I, I, I limit my coverage of political news, not because I can't handle it, but just simply because so much of it seems calculated to, uh, to make me upset or to make me feel uh, angry. So if it doesn't add value, I, I exercise my option not to uh, not to partake of it. But I like what J.B. Shirk has to say here. He says, A big part of the Great Reset is its orchestrated campaign to condition people into believing that they have no natural rights separate from and paramount to the mandates of government. Sounds about right. Most neoliberal nations no longer talk about the global ideological struggle once pitting free and controlled states against each other. Why? Because that distinction makes little sense when Australia is hunting down citizens for fleeing its quarantine concentration camps and Finland is putting Christianity on trial. 
He says, I'm trying to remember, who won the Cold War again? See, instead of admitting that they're waging war against free speech, Western governments claim, well, we're just protecting our people from by censoring misinformation that might cause social harm or disinformation that might be coming from Russia or China. It's for your own good to let political bureaucrats first determine what arguments people may consider and which ideas should be quickly stricken from the public conversation. He says, people with power, you see, are naturally endowed with extra genetic abilities that allow them to distinguish fact from fiction, and they can always be trusted to monitor misinformation with such impartiality and acumen that political calculation never remotely interferes with their benevolent duty to censor only what is bad. Hillary Clinton calls it necessary gatekeeping to protect the masses from seeing and thinking scary things. And that woman is a paragon of truth and virtue, so she must have our best interests at heart. Of course, Western governments believe in free speech, so long as that speech has been officially inspected, prodded, and approved by political committee. It's perfectly normal for freedom to feel like a colonoscopy. (laughs) That is such a great line. Sure, you can practice your faith, engage in commerce to make a living, and associate with like-minded citizens to protest the policies of your government, except during a pandemic. Then all bets are off. Oh, you didn't know that super-secret carve-out to your rights? Well, it's for your own good. We're trying to save lives here. Tell you what. We'll have some of our trusted government medical advisors announce when the pandemic is over and it's safe for freedom to return. They're scientists and therefore not only unbiased and trustworthy, but also above political influence and self-interest. Truly, they are the priests of the modern age. So nobody should doubt their judgment in making wise decisions that affect absolutely every aspect of each citizen's life. Ooh, bad news, friends. Our priests inform us that there are new pandemics of uncontrollable racism and unpredictable weather heading our way. And you figured out what happens during government-declared pandemics, right? That's correct. All your rights get put back into storage for use at a later time. So sorry. Now, J.B. Shirk says, Do you think having such flexible standards for safeguarding constitutionally protected rights in their own backyards might make it a little more difficult for NATO countries to repudiate the crimes of authoritarians around the world? For instance, U.S. lawmakers are outraged that Beijing should be allowed to host the 2022 Winter Olympics when the communist dictatorship is locking people up for merely exercising their most basic freedoms. Meanwhile, a large number of Americans who showed up at a political rally in January to exercise their freedoms of speech and assembly and protected right to petition their government for a redress of grievances, specifically their contention that the 2020 presidential election was conducted fraudulently to put Biden in the White House. These people have been rounded up by the FBI, forced to endure wretched jail conditions and alleged torture from the guards, and left languishing in solitary confinement without bail for most of the last year in order to face charges that amount to nothing more serious than trespassing within the people's house. Of course, because the federal government has decided that the First Amendment exists only when it's not too much of a bother for the ruling aristocracy to tolerate, these political prisoners are receiving punishments more severe than a lot of rapists and murderers. 
So Congress has decided it's virtuous to posture against China's human rights abuses while simultaneously disregarding those perpetrated at its behest just outside its doors. Is it possible for one world power that falsely brands trespassers as insurrectionists to marshal the requisite moral legitimacy to call out another world power for falsely rebranding genocide as a war against terrorism? Of course not. Only hypocrites condemn tyranny abroad while embracing it at home, but that's where we are today. Now, J.B. Shirk says, look, there's going to be a lot of discussion in the future about how formerly free countries became so totalitarian in their outlooks. By and large, they did so through a quiet linguistic sleight of hand that replaced the language of freedom with the language of democracy. He says, for several hundred years, Westerners have fought first and foremost for freedom while pushing democratic forms of government as procedural mechanisms for keeping power in check. But freedom is not democracy. And until quite recently, most people understood this obvious truth. If you take 100 people and 51 of them can vote to close your business, how free can you possibly feel? What if they decree that you must pray each day to a framed picture of the great Fauci hanging on the wall? How about if that slim majority decides you shouldn't be allowed to speak your mind and chooses to cut out your tongue instead? What happens when they vote to take away your property, burn your Bible, or chop off your head for backing the wrong leader? He says at some point, let's hope even the most ardent defenders of democracy might come to the correct conclusion just before the guillotine's blade comes crashing down that inalienable rights and liberties are the true cornerstones of any free society. Because without those... A simple majority can be every bit as bloody and unjust as even the worst tyrant. And when it's your head about to fall into the basket, you might very well prefer the benevolent dictator to the authoritarian democracy cheering on your demise. Got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our own break, but does that not ring true? The language of freedom has been swapped out for the language of democracy. We hear all politicians giving great lip service to democracy. Very, very few politicians speak the language of freedom. And as someone who has spent uh, the better part of his life studying the principles and practices of freedom, I may not be an expert, but I can tell when someone speaks the dialect of freedom. That's not what most politicians speak. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article here from J.B. Shirk. This was published on AmericanThinker.com. It's, uh, this is a pretty good piece. The opposite of tyranny is not democracy. Something that uh, I guess most of us could be forgiven for believing, simply because that's, that's how our politicians talk. That's how our media talks. That's, that's how we have shifted. And it's important to understand that distinction. In essence, says J.B. Shirk, Western governments have initiated a silent campaign to find and replace freedom with democracy 
in order to rewrite history and to dilute the public's protected powers and expand government control. Just days ago, D.C. Judge Amy Berman Jackson lectured one of the political prisoners being held by the federal government by actually arguing that the American War for Independence concerned people who went on to form a democracy and that the point of 1776 was to let the people to decide who would rule them. So we have another federal judge who knows so little about the U.S. Constitution and America's history that she erroneously thinks that both we are a democracy and that the Revolutionary War was fought so people could erect a system under which they would be ruled over in perpetuity. He's got a point here. That revolution was about we will rule ourselves because the king was doing such a crappy job of trying to rule over us. Now, neither is remotely correct, says J.B. Shirk. Neither of this, this judge's sentiments. Yet, now, yet only by pretending that inalienable rights are non-existent and that power exists not with the people but with the ruling class can another daft judge reframe something as American as a political rally as if it were something strangely foreign and unprecedented. He says it's Judge Jackson whose ignorance betrays the spirit of 1776. Yet she knows no better because she exists as part of the same ruling class committed to swapping the idea of freedom with the idea of democracy before the public figures out that it's lost. Or what it's lost, I should say. So he says, ask yourself this, though. If protecting democracy requires obeying an entrenched ruling class, then why haven't we just replaced the chains of English monarchy with the chains of, uh, or haven't we just replaced English monarchy with the chains of American oligarchy? Okay, fair question. If so, then don't let those with power redefine rights into suggestions, or the value of those rights will continue to depreciate just as quickly as the fiat money controlled by governments too. Again, there's a link to this in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I've really enjoyed what I've read recently from J.B. Shirk. I'll be keeping an eye on this guy for, for a while, too. I think he's got a pretty good slant on what's happening. Moving on. Is it just me, or does it seem like every time the sense of crisis starts to ebb in the public's mind, a new variant starts to dominate the news cycle? Because that's, that's really how this Omicron virant, or viral uh, variant seems to have been rolled out. And in fact, you're actually starting to see a little bit of, of walking back of, well, you know, maybe these travel restrictions were a little bit hasty. But boy, the alarmists, the Omicron alarmists are just having a heyday. Got a great article here from Adam Mill. This was published in amgreatness.com. Omicron alarmist delight. Subtitle is having missed out on the opportunity during the first wave of pandemic panic as they busied themselves with impeachment theatrics. Democrats are ready for it now. And he recalls Speaker Pelosi, you know, as they were getting ready to, to impeach President Trump. I don't know which time, but so today we will make history. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi intoned somberly over the chatter of camera shutters. When the House managers walk down the hall, they will cross a threshold in history delivering articles of impeachment against the President of the United States for abuse of power and obstruction of the House. 
One day earlier, on January 14th of 2020, Science.org had reported on a new SARS-like virus found in China. The speaker's pomp and circumstance notwithstanding, history seems to have taken more interest in the virus than in her impeachment farce. Much like a Midwestern driver speeding through summer darkness, it's not always immediately clear whether the object approaching one's windshield is a deer or just another bug splat in the night. To the thinking of Pelosi and so many others, the impeachment hearing over some phone call between Trump and the Ukrainian president was supposed to be the crash through the windshield of history. But in contrast, the virus from the obscure province in China, they figured, would splat harmlessly and with little notice. Now, it's worth remembering how difficult it can be to gain perspective of historic events as they fly toward our proverbial windshield. Pelosi, who has an uncanny ability to predict stock performance, that's tongue-in-cheek, by the way, usually misses the boat when it comes to assessing the long-term significance of news stories. Thus, when her party raises new alarm over the new Omicron variant pronounced, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening again, Macron! We should judge for ourselves whether we're in the midst of another bloody mess like the one few foresaw in January of 2020. Now here the author says it's possible, and I know this sounds crazy, that the Omicron variant actually represents good news. And he says, hear me out. Adam Mill says, early signs indicate that the Omicron variant lacks the death-dealing symptoms of its predecessors, yet spreads much more quickly than even the fast-moving Delta variant. Even the sainted Dr. Anthony Fauci finds himself backpedaling on the reflexive fear-mongering, saying it does not look like there's a great deal of severity to it. Thus, it seems possible that the Omicron could spread natural immunity quickly and relatively harmlessly through the population, and God willing, we can be done with this. Now, one South African doctor who helped address the very earliest cases of Omicron reported that the symptoms of Omicron were, quote, very mild. Now, this, of course, will not stand. Fear is the currency of power, and nobody's going to bend the knee just to avoid an evening of chills and fatigue. CNN, seeking to prop up its own relevancy, has again hit the well-worn panic button. On Saturday, Dr. Megan Ranney published an opinion piece describing the Omicron variant as dreaded. Instead of focusing on the mild symptoms, the doctor sowed panic, warning it's not looking good. One preliminary model suggests that Omicron spreads twice as easily as the Delta variant. This is the reason many of us scientists are warning people to mask up in public and go get their booster. So do masks work? Well, that question will always start an argument. Does the booster work against Omicron? Ranny admitted we don't know whether boosters have any effect on the new variant. The Biden administration has announced new measures to combat the virus, which look a lot like the old measures from 2020. And these appear to include pan, plans rather for booster mandates to ensure that the nearly 100 million eligible Americans who have not yet gotten their booster shot get one as soon as possible. But again, do the work, do the boosters work on Omicron? Stop asking questions, science denier. Further, the Biden administration will expand vaccinations of children to protect against Omicron. So are the risks of Omicron to children more or less deadly than the chance of vaccine inf- the vaccine inflicting heart damage, like myocarditis or pericarditis? 
Now, that seems like a relevant question, but social media nevertheless censors virtually anything or any reporting on its side effects as misinformation. Remember when they censored stories about the Hunter Biden laptop or the censorship of the Wuhan lab leak origin hypothesis? Or when social media didn't censor blatant falsehoods about the Kyle Rittenhouse Kenosha shootings? But they did censor posts supporting Rittenhouse and suppressed efforts to raise funding for the ultimately innocent Rittenhouse. See, that censorship, ironically, makes information more credible and destroys the clash of ideas that are vital to informing the Democratic electorate. Got a link to this article in the show notes. I'm going to come back to it just the other side of our break. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, I want to thank you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And I want to uh, give some love here to one of my sponsors. That would be the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, they're located in St. George, Utah, 619 South Bluff Street. That's where you'll find her office. You can call Heather at at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Why should you count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage? Let's just say that homes don't stay on the market right now for very long. The competition is very fierce. The inventory is very low. If you find the home of your dreams, you need to get your financing or have your financing in order. So instead of, you know, waiting a few days, okay, well, let's see if we can qualify for this. Know where you're going to be. Know what you have in hand and go in with confidence that, yep, we've got this. Time is of the essence, and that's why you need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I'm sharing this article from Adam Mill, and this is about the Omicron alarmists are having a heyday, meaning the power seekers are taking full advantage right now. He points out how the Biden administration is planning to launch a new public education campaign to encourage adults to get boosters with a special emphasis on the skeptical communities of color. Interesting. It's hard to imagine anyone in America could escape the constant drumbeat of education that saturates our airwaves and electronic media. Now, clearly, Pelosi misdiagnosed the January 20th moment in history in which she found herself impeaching then-President Trump for something about a phone call. Well, she's not going to miss out on the panic this time. She recently urged Americans that our message is that we have to respect governments, meaning vaccine mandates. Now, most reasonably intelligent Americans make choices about risk every day, says Adam Mill. Mandates and censorship deprive individuals of the ability to make their own informed decisions. Even more troubling, nearly one in three healthcare workers who work in the medical field are still refusing to get vaccinated, in spite of presumably having the best access to information. Indeed, the one in three rate appears to be slightly higher than that of the general population. So why are so many doctors and nurses anti-science? None of this builds confidence in the dictates of bureaucrats who've wrested real power away from elected governments. Boom. Well done, Adam Mill. 
I want to shift gears here for a moment and uh, talk a little bit about abortion, since this is something that's on a lot of people's minds. The Supreme Court's considering a case that could lead to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Abortion's a hot topic. I understand it's a very controversial topic, but I wanted you to hear what Judge Andrew Napolitano has to say about abortion and the Constitution. He starts with a quote from uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. This is from December 1st of this year. The fetus has an interest in having a life. And Judge Napolitano says last week's oral argument in the Supreme Court about abortion was both humdrum and arcane. Humdrum because we already knew where the nine justices stand on the morality of abortion. Arcane because the questions and answers were largely not about abortion, but about stare decisis, the legal doctrine that calls for settled law not to be lightly disturbed. What brought this about? Okay, here's the background. Mississippi has enacted into law a statute that prohibits abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. Now, that statute directly conflicts with two major Supreme Court opinions on abortion, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. The 1973 Roe v. Wade decision establishes a trimester system during which the state's interest in protecting the life of the baby in the womb does not come into being until the third trimester of pregnancy. More importantly, Roe holds that the states may not ban abortions prior to fetal viability, roughly at the end of the first trimester, around 23 weeks. The Casey opinion, 19 years after Roe, and with a largely different membership in the court, upheld Roe's no abortions until viability standard and added a new rule that prohibited the states from imposing any undue burden on mothers seeking abortions. Thus, Mississippi and Texas, which prohibits abortions after six weeks, right behind it, is effectively asking the court to overrule both Roe and Casey. Now, the Mississippi argument states that because the Constitution is silent on abortion or any kind of killing, its framers must have intended to leave regulation of those subjects to the states. The counterargument is that women have personal autonomy over their bodies, and that autonomy trumps any state interest at any time. Now, Judge Napolitano says, when the Roe court established the bright line of viability as the point before which no state could prohibit the taking of the taking the life of the baby in the womb. It did so without legal justification or scientific basis. We know from the posthumously released notes of revealed notes of Justice Harry Blackman, author of the Roe decision. Yet an unwanted pregnancy is just as unwanted the day before viability as it is the day after. Viability has been the bright line for 48 years, and during that time, over 62 million abortions have been performed in the U.S. in reliance upon it. So can the court change the bright line? And if so, should it? That was the essence of the argument last week, but that argument largely misses the constitutional point. There is nothing constitutional about viability. Justice Blackman made it up out of thin air, and six other members of the court accepted it, just as Justice Sandra Sandra Day O'Connor made up undue burden out of thin air in Casey. The constitutional point here is whether the baby in the womb is a person. Roe itself concedes in the text of the opinion that if the baby is a person— with an interest in having a life, as Justice Samuel Alito Jr. put it during oral arguments, 
than Roe falls. That's because the 14th Amendment prohibits states from taking life, liberty, or property from any persons without due process, meaning a jury trial at which the state would need to prove fault. Such a demonstration would be impossible in the case of a baby in the womb. As well, the same amendment also requires equal protection of laws. Since all laws protect life by enacting laws against homicide, they must enforce those laws equally so as to protect all persons from being murdered irrespective of age or physical dependency. Now, Napolitano says the linchpin to the application of the 14th Amendment jurisprudence to abortion is the concept of personhood. If that fetus is a person, the mother and her physicians may not lawfully kill the fetus any more than they could lawfully kill the father of the fetus. This is why the debate over viability misses the point. The court should have passed over the argument about viability and moved into the only constitutional issue here, personhood. Is the fetus in the womb a person? Judge Napolitano says, of course she is. The growing baby has human parents and all the genomic material within her tiny body to develop and mature into a postnatal child. The fetus, through a guardian, can be sued and sue, can inherit assets and even bequeath them. These truisms and legal principles were known to the framers when they wrote the Constitution and to the drafters and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment. Now, he says this business of denying personhood can be dangerous beyond compare. In 1857, the Supreme Court infamously held in Dred Scott v. Sanford that African Americans were not persons, and thus they could not sue for legal protection and could be brought as slaves into free territory. The German Nuremberg Laws in the 1930s hatefully declared that Jews were not persons and therefore had no legal rights. We all know where these horrific principles brought us a war that killed more Americans than all other wars combined, and a holocaust of catastrophic proportions. So Judge Napolitano asks, do the justices have the moral courage to recognize babies in the womb as persons? He says, I doubt it. Though my college college classmate, Justice Alito, seems to be going that direction, Yet making such a declaration, broad and sweeping so as to cover all humans at all times and under all circumstances, would put to bed once and for all the debates over the rights of all, from babies in the womb to foreign detainees in American foreign jails. All offspring of human parents are endowed with natural rights that they may enjoy and for the exercise of which they can require governmental protection. Napolitano says this is the only valid moral purpose of government. Absent unanimous consent of the governed, it is to protect the lives, liberty, and property of all persons. I mean, there are people who will strongly disagree with him on this, but I just think he says it as as simply and beautifully as it could be said. Of course, there is a link to this in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Hey, if you want to access those show notes, in fact, if you want me to just go ahead and email a copy of them to you, hit the subscribe button when you go to my website. I'll add you to the list, and I can send you some great reading material each and every day that I do this program. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I hope that uh, you're finding some good food for thought in today's program. My show notes are there for anybody who wants to take a little bit deeper dive into any of these topics. And I want you to understand that when I when I go to uh, picking, you know, what to, what do I want to share on the show today? I'm trying to find things that are compelling. I want things that are relevant. I try to stay away from the sensational just because uh, it's it's so superficial. You know, whipping people's emotions into a frenzy. I've done it. I'm guilty of that. I've done it before. Throwing red meat? Absolutely. Why would people do stuff like that? Well, in a nutshell, because it works. But I believe that we have a little bit higher opportunity here than simply, hey, let's get really riled up and start chanting in unison, you know, which is unfortunately where where a lot of people are willing to draw the line and say, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to be mad and I want to be chanting bumper sticker slogans with people who are mad just like me, my friends who hate the same things that I do. See, I'm not here to encourage you to hate or to even feel angry and certainly not to start chanting in unison. I want you to think about these things and delve into them because it matters to you. Not because, well, Brian said I ought to do this and uh, he seems like a nice enough guy. I should probably do that. Nope. I'm speaking up on a daily basis because I really feel like I have a duty to do this. I was talking with my friend Eric Mutzos yesterday. and Eric, I, I think, is just a wonderful example of someone who didn't really want to be in the spotlight, but found himself there. And in so, uh, you know, in looking around and evaluating, why am I here? You know, this is something he took to God. And he says, you know, I feel the calling. And I, I know there are others who feel this too. To stand up and just to, to the best of your ability to be a source of light. This is a time when we need more light. So that's what I'm trying to accomplish on a day-to-day basis. I am joined by lots of other great people trying to do the same thing in their own way. And ultimately what I'm trying to do here is, is not so much, you know, convince you to my school of thought or, you know, come be my follower. Rather, I'm trying to convince you to become a source of light in your own right and in your own circle of influence. Because we need more leaders. We don't need more followers. The fact that you're listening to this program, to me, is a pretty good indicator. You're probably one of those leaders, whether you want to believe it or not. But uh, do you hear that call? Maybe listen a little bit closer. All right, going to shift gears for just one last time here. Talk a little bit about how, you know, Western civilization definitely has its strengths, but it also has some weaknesses. And Paul Rosenberg, in a column that he wrote back in 2017, talked about the dirty trick that's destroying us. He says, every civilization has its own peculiar characteristics, and because of them, each civilization has its own vulnerable areas. In other words, areas that a clever adversary can take advantage of. And Western civilization is no exception. He says, most unfortunately, we've been under a sharp attack for many years by people who found our weakness and are exploiting it. So he says, I'll explain how and what we need to do about it. Western civilization was built upon the Judeo-Christian tradition, and primarily on the Christian tradition. Anyone who claims differently simply doesn't understand the civilization or doesn't want to. 
Now, whether or not the doctrines of Judaism and Christianity are true, these are the foundations of our civilization. Now, just to be clear, Greece and Rome are not part of Western civilization. Those civilizations were based upon slavery, which Western civilization removed because of its new morals. Did we borrow from them? Sure we did. Just like we borrowed writing from the Sumerians and alphabet from the Phoenicians. That really can't be disputed. But he says these principles, like compassion for the outsider, forgiveness and loving your neighbor, are demands for enlightened and righteous action in the world. So how do you subvert people in a culture that's centered on righteous action? Well, the answer is you convince them of sin. Of course, you find one way after another to make them feel like they and their civilization have failed to be righteous. That's the weak point. Then you convince them that they need to absolve themselves in ways that suit your agenda. Is any of this sounding familiar? Paul Rosenberg asks, have you noticed that the guilt slingers always have a preset conclusion for you? A single thing you must do to absolve the guilt they've tossed upon you. So here's an example. An imposer of guilt says, Your community has allowed sewage to be poured into the river, and along with that comes an either-or solution. A new regulatory agency must be given sweeping powers, and if you don't agree, well, you favor sewage and drinking water. Paul Rosenberg says this trick has been eviscerating the West for decades. There's even a well-known school of thought known as critical theory that promotes this. Yes, It's the same theory that's being taught to your kids or is trying to be shoehorned into their schools. And Rosenberg says these people have dedicated themselves to criticizing everything possible about Western civilization and have prospered by it. Their tool is weaponized guilt, the West's kryptonite. So if we're going to survive as a civilization, and he says, I think we really, really should, we must stop being suckers to everyone with a fresh criticism. These people are not trying to build. They're trying to tear down. Stated differently, he says, we must stop believing that we suck because we don't. So how to ditch the guilt? Well, he says, we ditch our guilt by facing up to what we've done in the past. And we can start that process by giving ourselves credit for the good things we've done. We're not supposed to pretend that those things never happened. We're supposed to feel good about them. Secondly, we need to face the things we've actually done wrong and fix them. If you were unfair or cruel or whatever, gather up your guts and go fix it. Go to the person you hurt and apologize. Make a public statement if you must. Restore what was lost any way you can. If that's hard or embarrassing, tough. Do it anyway. We become suckers for guilt when we leave our errors in an unfixed state. We can fool others, but we know what we've done, and we know that we, we know what we haven't repaired. And that state of mind makes us vulnerable to guilt. So he says, face your errors and fix them. Now, adding to our troubles is the fact that huge swaths of modern Christianity focus on telling people how badly they suck. It's how they evangelize. He says, I'll pass up a dissertation on how Christianity has strayed from its roots, but I'd like you to understand that Jesus' message was not, you suck. In one place, he repeats and defends the saying, you are gods. In In another, he says that God loves us as much as God loved him, Jesus. But regardless of theology, 
We need to ditch the guilt. So if you've done something bad, fix it. Then fix yourself so you don't repeat it. But after that, stop complying with people who trade with who trade in guilt. So I guess the takeaway from this is just remember, guilt plus politics is a toxic mis- mixture. It serves to dethrone reason and to transfer power to clever abusers. Paul Rosenberg says, don't concede good intentions to people who wield this weapon against you. They aim to chop things down, not to repair them. So he says, let me make this very clear. Guilt mixed with politics is poison. It's a weapon designed to destroy Western civilization. So repair your errors and reject the guilt. Now, some people think that that is just, how could, how could you deny you know, what, uh, what you've done? But I think he's got a good point here. And something that you have to remember, too, and this is looking back at all the people who have lived up to this point, all the people who paved the way before us. If we're tempted to portray them as, as angels compared to ourselves, we're probably wrong. Likewise, if we're, if we're tempted to, to say that they were nothing but devils, that's also wrong. They were neither entirely one or the other. Like us, they found themselves born into a world where there were imperfections and where there were things that were good and there were things that were bad. But for the most part, they were trying to do the best they could under those circumstances. And whatever blind spots they have should serve as a very strong warning to us. We have those same blind spots. Maybe not the exact same blind spot, but we have our own blind spots. I'm still having a really hard time believing that uh, someday future civilizations are going to look at us and say, you know, they were really off track until they finally, you know, enacted uh, Drag Queen Story Hour. But boy, then, from that point on, American civilization was just as right as rain. So, let's lose the sense of moral superiority. Yes, a little slug of humility might do us some good. And I like Rosenberg's advice. If you did something wrong, own it, fix it, and move on. But do not let the people who are wielding guilt control you through that guilt. This is The Brian Hyde Show.